0: Thank you guys for leading us in worship today. As we uh, turn our attention to God's Word, um, before we get started, we just want to remind everyone that Pastor Joel is out of town for today, so please be praying for his re- safe return uh, tonight. But we do have another pastor who is in town. Pastor... Chase is here with us today. Thank you for coming and visiting with us. So at the end of our service today, please take some time to greet him, to welcome him, to say hello. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, as we open your word today, help us to listen intently. Help us to be open to what you want us to hear. Lord, help us to be thirsty. For you and thirsty for your word. As we try to to answer this question of who you are. Lord make that clear to us as we look into your word. And help us to obey you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be in chapter 7 of John today. So if you have the copy of the scriptures with you, your Bible, you can open up to that. As you notice on the screen, we're going to cover 53 verses today. And Jesus uh, took three days, but I'm going to take about half an hour, okay? So we're going to summarize a lot of that. Um, so bear with me. There's a lot of information. Uh, but really, we need to truly understand who Jesus is for us. ...to be able to share that good news with others. And in this chapter, John gives us some clear, clear truths. So we're going to begin with that. Okay? But first I want to... First invite everybody to the crazy world of social media. Okay? How many of you are involved in social media? You have some type of account... You got some followers. Okay, I see a handful. Okay, I may not be preaching to the choir today, so I might have to change my sermon. All right, but anyways, you know, but I think there's a lot of ties with what we're going to talk about today. Um, You know, we live in a world that is changing fast, isn't it? A world that is getting crazier and crazier by the minute. And what we're witnessing on social media today, and, you know, things are not looking good for our future generations. Would you agree with that? Things that we didn't have to put up with, now they have to put up with. And I'm really saddened by it because it's really going in a downward spiral. You know, the world has gone nuts and people have become extremely self-centered and conceited. You know, Jesus told us that. Jesus told us that people will become lovers of self. So we shouldn't be surprised as we get closer to his return. One thing that I did in my study for today, I kind of wanted to get some pictures and do an illustration of how this concept of followers, okay, is portrayed in the social media. You know, for decades we have been introduced to all these different platforms of social media, and we see that people are in need of followers, right? You know, come like me, come subscribe to my channel, be my follower. And their approach has become so self-centered where they're seeking fame. They're so desperate for fame and popularity that they're willing to do and say anything for likes and followers. And a lot of times their importance is really put on the worth of how trendy they are in our culture today. Or how many followers they have. As you go to the next slide, there's always this question: How I can get more followers, right? Because it's a competition for the world. It's all about attention and about the numbers. Now, one of the biggest social media stories, if, uh, if you followed in the news recently, was about Elon Musk buying Twitter, or at least he's still working in that process. And millions did not take well to the news. Okay, the the Twitter world went media crazy. They went into a frenzy that just resulted in millions of people abandoning those whom they were following. Ironic, right? And look at the next slides with me briefly, okay? These are some of the Twitter accounts who have the most followers as of April. So we're a little outdated, okay, about a month or so, into the millions. And you can see... The people and the influential figures, the politicians that are listed in this list. In the next slide, <clears throat> to the right, you'll see the top 10 social media followers in the world. And this is of all the social media platforms combined. Okay, now I happen to know the person on the top because he's a soccer player. But as you can see, Who's influence in our world today? It's the entertainment industry. It's not the church, is it? Sadly, to say. And on the left side here, when we see the Twitter purge, okay, those are the millions of people that left Twitter when this news came out. So this begs the question: Were these guys real followers, or they just had a special motive? and what they were doing in social media. We see the losses in the millions who deserted Twitter. And I'm not trying to bring politics in the church. This has nothing to do with that, right? I want you to realize how a person's decision, a person's motive, can impact the decisions of millions to give up following their favorite celebrity. Would you say that the millions of followers were indeed true followers? Is there such thing as true followers on social media, by the way? I'm just asking. You know, obviously the concept of following somebody on social media is very different from that of the time of Jesus. But there are similarities. As it relates to following Jesus, we see that Jesus in his ministry faced similar challenges. Many of his followers, they came and went as they pleased. They had no loyalty and no trust to him. As we look at his earthly life, we see that he ministered throughout the region, throughout the land of Israel. From Galilee to Judea, he went to Samaria, to Decapolis, to Perea. And wherever he went, the multitudes were following And he gained thousands and thousands of followers because of his teachings, because of his miracles, and all the great things that he was doing. The people saw Jesus as an influencer, a public figure who spoke against the religious establishment. And because he was so unique, the people were constantly following him to see what he would do next. As we dive into our text today, let's take a look at the setting of our story. And the setting begins in, in chapter one, uh, excuse me, chapter seven, verse one. Now, for the most part of his earthly ministry, we see Jesus ministering up in the northern part of Israel, the northern region, the region of Galilee. Okay, as you can see from that picture, we've got a lot of writings. So I don't expect you to write all of it, but just kind of take a look at how many things Jesus did up on the north compared to how many things he did on the south. His primary mission was obviously to reach all the Jews and the Gentiles later on. But he focused on Galilee. This region was more convenient and closer to his hometown, Nazareth. Jesus, here, however, we find out that he was met with increased opposition as he ministered. In the region of Galilee as well as in the southern region of Judea. By this time, Jesus' ministry was at odds with the religious leaders. He was on the most wanted list in Jerusalem. And chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that the Jews in Judea were seeking to kill him. That is why he chose to stay in Galilee, the northern region. Now, it wasn't the Jewish people as a whole that were trying to kill Jesus. As we talked about last time that I preached, it was the the religious rulers, the Pharisees, the chief priests. They were the ones that wanted to do harm. And so Jesus stayed in the region of Galilee, not because he was afraid of dying or afraid of this opposition. It was rather because the Bible tells us it was not the right time. Now, I want you to remember that phrase because we're going to see it throughout sermon today. In verse 2 in our text, we're told that there is a very important feast that the Jewish people were getting ready for, the Feast of Tabernacles. It also had other different names, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Shelters, or the Feast of Engatherings. And this was a religious feast that originated during the time of Moses when the people were in the desert. It was a very significant Jewish festival held every year, which brought devout Jews from all over the world. And they came to Jerusalem. Now, the feast lasted a whole week. Okay? And there would be multitudes of people in the capital city of Jerusalem. This would be a great time for Jesus to draw more followers. Now, the Jews, during the feast, they would celebrate and thank God for the harvest and also commemorate the days when the Israelites wandered in the wilderness and lived in shelters. This is a modern shelter that people would live on today, just as, as an example. It, won, it was one of the seven feasts of the Lord that the people of Israel were commanded to observe. This wasn't a party for the people, this was a feast to focus on God and His. Goodness and His provisions. Now it's important for us to remember that John, in his writing of the gospel here, does not include every detail of the ministry of Jesus. The event of the Feast of the Tabernacles, okay, uh, it's about six months after the Passover. Now, in chapter six of last week, okay, we learned that Jesus. Okay, was going to celebrate the Passover. Now we're at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Okay, this is six months after. So months have passed, and Jesus is ministering into Galilee, and the feast is coming. And so the brothers of Jesus come up with this great idea. Hey, let's get Jesus to go down and celebrate at the feast. But in answering our question today, who is Jesus? We need to really look at the big picture. And John, here the author, first tells us how his earthly brothers perceived Jesus. And here's what they told him in chapter 7. It says, Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples, notice the emphasis, your disciples, also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But see here, John tells us on verse 5 that there's a hidden agenda from the brothers. Verse 5 tells us, For not even his brothers were believing in him. See, there's little information that's given to us in the Scriptures about Jesus' earthly family. We know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We know the names of the brothers. Uh, They were James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Uh, The names of the sisters are not recorded for some reason. But we know that Jesus had an earthly family. And he grew up with brothers and sisters. And here yet they failed... To see who he was in reality. At this point, the brothers... We'll get to that, Bobby. At this point, the brothers did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They only saw him as a public figure. That's why they invite him to go at the feast. Because they're thinking, you know, if Jesus is going to show his works and his miracles and his teaching there. Hey, guess what? We're connected to Jesus there is a selfish motive right there. We also may become as popular as Jesus. Now that's one of the theories. See, they thought that Jesus wanted to become a famous public figure. That's why they told him, Stop hanging around here, Galilee. Go down to where you need to be, where the people are going to be. Most followers agree that the brothers of Jesus became believers after his resurrection, after they, after his death and resurrection, and... In Acts, we find that they were also part of the early church. So later on, they come to faith. Two of his brothers, James and Jude, actually are going to be the writers of the New Testament, as we know. See, according to Jesus' brothers, Jerusalem was the place. It was the place to be, and this would have been a great opportune time for Jesus to draw the masses, bring many followers to himself, and to display his powers and works In a way that had never been witnessed. See previously Jesus had faced some ups and downs in his ministry. When he fed the thousands, the thousands following him. But last week in our sermon we learned that as Jesus was teaching in Capernaum. Many decided to leave him. Here's what John tells us in chapter 6, verse 66. As a result of this, referring to his teaching in Capernaum, many of his followers withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So do you see this trend of people coming and going, uh, you know, being attracted to Jesus and then leaving when they do not agree with who he is? And here the Galilean disciples deserted him And so Jesus, last week we saw saw this, when he turned to the disciples and said, What about you guys? Are you guys going to leave me too? Are you going to desert me too? And of course, Peter says, No, where are we going to go? Do you have the words of life? It's important for us to understand that just because we are in close proximity to Jesus, as the brothers were here, it does not automatically bring us the faith. See, Jesus had a great opportunity to show the world who he was. And the brothers wanted him to do that very same thing. He said, if you want to declare yourself as the Messiah, go ahead. But don't do it in Galilee. Show your true glory and identity in Jerusalem, the capital city, the religious center of the world. See, they misunderstood the person and they failed to realize his mission. These signs were not done to get thousands of lives or followers, so to speak, but to reveal the Father. He came not to be a popular political figure, but a servant who would give his life for all humanity. Now follow with me. In verse 6, Jesus responds to the brothers by saying this, My time is not yet here. But your time is always opportune. See, Jesus was telling him, you guys can go to Jerusalem as you please, as you go. You have free access to travel there because you have no opposition. Jesus' enemies were always on the lookout for him. The world was hostile toward Jesus, but not to his brothers. Jesus told them that he was not of the world. And thus, as the light of the world, he knew how wicked the world was. He exposed and spoke the evil deeds of the world, especially the sins of the religious people and the religious leaders of Israel. He revealed their hypocrisy and their disobedience toward God. And for that very reason, they wanted to kill him. He was hated. He spoke the truth, and for that they wanted to cancel him and do away with him. But we need to remember that God has a divine plan in the life of Jesus. That even though his miracles, which brought life and hope into the world, even those were not enough for the people. Jesus actually tells us that this too was part of God's plan. That he would be hated without a cause. John 15, 25, later on, tells us this. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. See, he was later later on killed, even though he was perfect in every way. Now, remember that the next time you face hatred and opposition from the world. Jesus actually is teaching us the truth here, that... If I was hated, you too, as my disciples, will be hated and even killed for my name's sake. So after Jesus has this conversation with the brothers in verse 8, he tells them to go to the feast because he's not going to go with them at that very moment because, again, it was not the yet the time to do so. God's timing for Jesus was different than that of his brothers. God's timing is always perfect. So what did Jesus mean in his response? Why was his right timing so crucial in his life? And we see this in John, okay, as you see the verses on the screen, we're not going to be able to read all of them, but but notice the verses, the references that John makes and even other authors in the Gospels make regarding to this the time is at hand, or the time has not yet come. Notice, to his mother, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. My time is not yet here. My time has not yet fully come. And then toward the end, notice what Jesus says toward the end. John 17, 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So as we look at the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus, we know that there is a time that he has to follow. That is divine, that is established by God the Father. And Jesus, being the obedient son, he will make sure that no brother or person can deviate him from that time. That is why Jesus later on goes to the festival, but he does so in secret. He knows that the Jewish leaders are searching for him. His brothers had left to go to Jerusalem earlier that week. And his purpose in going to Jerusalem was to teach the people about God. And he does so in the middle of the feast, in the middle of the week, because we know that the crowd obviously would be greater in numbers. But Jesus always had in mind his true identity. And he was careful not to reveal it. That's why at times he would tell the evil spirits, to not speak of his name or shout it out. He told some of his disciples and some of the people that he healed, don't tell anyone what you've seen here. Jesus' true identity is important to understand because it's linked to the purpose and the mission of why he came. Now John, in this section that follows after Jesus enters Jerusalem in secret, he tells us, mixed emotions of how the people and the Jewish leaders responded to this controversial teacher. If you have a pen with you or something to write, just fill in some of these blanks. There's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of feelings. There's a lot of confusion going on in Jerusalem and how people are responding to this controversial teacher. Now, for time's sake, we're not going to be able to read all the verses, but feel free to read this chapter at home when you go home. First, there was hatred. For Jesus by the Jewish leaders. See, they were charged with teaching God's word to the people, but they had failed because they loved sin more. They loved the darkness, and they loved themselves more than they loved God. Their man-made laws had become more important than God's law. They hated Jesus, the Son, who revealed the Father to them in His works, in His teachings, and authority. And they responded to Jesus with violence. There was also mockery. Earlier we saw Jesus' brothers did not believe that he was the Messiah and they ridiculed him. Now I'm sure some of us in this room have brothers and sisters. And as we grew up at some point, they're always trying to find a way to get us into trouble, right? They were always encouraging you to do that extra thing. So that mom and dad could find out who did it and then they would ridicule you and mock you and laugh at you when you got the beating, right? Or when you got punished, of course. Now I had a lot of friends in the orphanage that I grew up in. There was about a hundred of them. So I was able to not be revealed as quickly as some of the brothers and sisters. I was a little sneaky, okay? But you know what? This concept of ridiculing and mockery is part of our life. It's part of our sinful nature. And we see that even... He and the family of Jesus, even though the brothers grew up with him. There was also division among the people who grumbled and whispered quietly about the identity of this man. Many were debating, who is this guy? Is he a good man or is he a heretic? There was confusion and there was a lot of mystery behind Jesus there was also conflict. The people were wondering if Jesus was indeed the Messiah or not. Because the Jewish leaders were not doing anything to arrest him. Okay, they were wondering, Okay, why is he still speaking? If he's the, the man that they're trying to seek and kill, why is he out in the public square talking? Why is he in the temple sharing and teaching the people about God? Some of the people were confused also about the origin of the Messiah. They didn't know where he was coming from, but one, one thing they knew, he was not coming from Galilee. See, they longed for the coming of the Messiah, but they sadly fa- they failed to realize that he was in their midst. The Bible also tells us that, that there was fear among the people and the Jewish leaders. People didn't want to associate with Jesus. They were afraid of what the authorities would do in return in punishing them. The rulers were also afraid of the the multitudes and the crowds. They were worried about their reputation with the crowds and their influence with the crowds. They feared criticism and they feared loss of influence. So So that's why when Jesus is drawing the multitudes and the crowds, the religious leaders were always following to see... Okay, is he going to undermine us? Is he going to turn the crowds against us? And they feared that Jesus' influence was increasing by the day, and many were coming to believe in him. They were scared to oppose him publicly for the fear of the crowd and how they would react. But also, as we read in this chapter, there was amazement. Some of the Jewish leaders who heard Jesus were astonished by his teachings and the knowledge of the scriptures. They wondered to themselves, how could this man who never went to rabbinical school, he was never a rabbi, how could this man be so well educated and so learned? See, they figured maybe he taught himself. The officers also were amazed at Jesus' teaching. They were sent on a mission to arrest Jesus, but they returned empty-handed, and when the authorities questioned them, they are like, "Um, we, we couldn't do it. This man is different. And here's what they said in response to Jesus when they, when they went to their superiors. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So they were awed in amazement of the words and the teachings and the truths that were coming from Jesus. And that touched their heart. That touched their soul. But as we know in the ministry of Jesus, it's not always positive. There's always something that is negative, that is in opposition. And so there was rejection. There was rejection. Some people in Jewish rulers rejected the idea that Jesus was the Messiah because they related him to what he did in his earthly life. They related him of being a carpenter from Nazareth. They said that he was a Galilean and therefore he could not be the Messiah. They knew his earthly origin. They knew the place that he grew up in. They knew the family. They knew the brothers and sisters. There's no way this man is the Messiah. And they used the scriptures. Here's the irony. They used the scriptures to say that the Messiah would come from the town of Bethlehem. He would come from the lineage of King David. So there was rejection. But the story does not end there. There was also belief. The Bible tells us that some of the people who heard Jesus teaching in the temple, they put their faith and trust in him. They identified Jesus as the Christ. That he was indeed the prophet that Moses spoke of, the Messiah. See, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, it is important for us to understand that his mission was to tell people that his teaching was from God. His mission was from God. His very works and authority were from God. But some of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they refused to believe that. There were some main points that Jesus taught while he was at the feast. So let's quickly just cover some of these main points. The first point that Jesus taught to the crowds was that his knowledge... His teaching and mission came from God, the Father. Notice how Jesus is not pointing attention to himself. He's pointing attention to the person that has sent him. It is the Father who sent him. Whatever he's doing, he's not doing selflessly to gain followers for himself. He's doing to direct his attention of people to the Father. As he confronted the Jewish leaders... Jesus also told them of their moral failures. The Jewish leaders failed to recognize him because they failed to do the Father's will. They would have acknowledged Jesus' teachings to be true because they were from the Father. But the Jewish authorities questioned Jesus because they were spiritually blinded of the truth. And here Jesus tells them, That he is perfect. That he is true. And that in him there is no falsehood. And Jesus is speaking the truth on behalf of the Father. Now in verse 19, he turns the attention to them saying, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And some in the crowd who heard Jesus were confused by the saying because they did not know, they were not aware of that it was the religious leaders that were trying to kill Jesus. And notice how they accused Jesus. They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. See, in our false reasoning, we can come to the wrong conclusion of who Jesus is. It's important for us to understand that Jesus came to reveal Jesus. The Father. And here Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Jewish people, of how it was so far away from God's word. This brings us to our third point. Jesus confronts the people for breaking Moses' law. He tells them, You guys, you guys take pleasure, you take honor in following the law of Moses, but you don't. You're lawbreakers. And he also reveals also here reveals the ruler's hypocrisy toward the Sabbath law. We read that passage today and in, in teaching that part, Jesus here is he's telling them that you are falsely accusing me of breaking the law when in reality it's you that has broken the law. They're the lawbreakers because they're trying to kill Jesus as we are aware of the law of God given by Moses, one of the laws, was, you shall not murder. And here are the people wanting to arrest Jesus with, obviously, the hope of murdering Him. But see, Jesus knew their hearts and their inner thoughts, and they were very far from God. They were full of evil and falsehood. That's why He confronts the religious leaders of their hypocrisy regarding the Sabbath. And He used one of the religious rites, the rite of circumcision, Now, according to the Levitical law, males, according to the law, were to be circumcised on the eighth day. And the Jews would circumcise a boy on the eighth day, even if it fell on the Sabbath. And here Jesus is telling the people, well, what's going on here, guys? You guys can definitely break the Sabbath by performing the... The ritual of circumcision for a boy, well, why can't I heal on the Sabbath? And so, here, by doing that, Jesus is revealing their hypocrisy, okay, how they say one thing and do another. Jesus argued that if it's right to do so in accordance with the Mosaic law, why were they angry with him for healing the entire body of a man? He was healed fully. If it was right on the Sabbath to perform the ceremony of circumcision, then it was right on the Sabbath to heal. That is the conclusion that Jesus wanted the people to understand. And after this defense of healing on the Sabbath, He then rebukes the religious leaders and calls them to judge righteously. He stated to them, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, what did Jesus mean by this, judge with righteous judgment? See, Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders, they observed the law superficially. They cared more about how they looked on the outside to the general public. They tried to appear righteous, but in reality, they had morally failed to obey God's commands. I mean, here's what Jesus tells them in Matthew 23, 28. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to man. But inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now imagine if Jesus told you that. Would you be upset? Would you be angry? That's why they were angry at Jesus. Because Jesus confronted them at the core of their heart. And he addressed their issue, their sin. See, their judgments were wrong because they were external in nature. And they failed to deal with the internal. The Bible tells us that God looks at the heart and judges righteously. This brings us to our fourth point. Judge by not what looks good, but judge by what is right. That's what the lesson that Jesus was trying to get them to understand. And this also brings us to our last point. Jesus, our fifth point, Jesus knows the Father because His origin... Is from the Father. As Jesus does this teaching of three days, long days of of, of pouring out His knowledge, pouring out uh, His wisdom, people are responding differently, right? And John here gives us some insight of how people perceive Jesus as He was teaching in the temple. Now, some of the religious establishments said, been trying to arrest and kill jesus but that to their surprise we see that jesus is teaching for days and there's no opposition so people are wondering what is going on here is jesus really the messiah is he the christ in this next slide okay we're going to see how the people perceive jesus and we'll see that the answers are very different they're not all the same first some people perceive jesus as a good man Others perceived him as a deceiver, as a heretic, leading the people astray. There were some who thought that he was uh, self-taught. He uh, he took the time to learn everything without going to school, without being a rabbi. And there were others that thought he was demonic, that he was demon-possessed. They rejected him for not being the Christ because they related him to his ministry location to where he was working, where he was living most of the time, in Galilee. But there were also others that said that he is the prophet. He is the Christ. So in the midst of all these different responses, different perceptions of who Jesus is, we learn that not all of them can be right, right? It's got to be somebody who's wrong. The Bible tells us that out of the large crowd, many believed and identified Jesus as the Christ. See, most of these answers were based on earthly reasoning. And Jesus confronted this way of thinking as he was teaching the people. They knew him from his earthly family ties, but they did not know where he came from. He came from the Father. You know, today we make our own version of who Jesus is. To some of us in culture, we're trying to make Jesus a celebrity. We're trying to make him a great teacher. But Jesus is more than that. And we need to come to the right conclusion of who he is in order to receive what he offers us. As he concludes the feast, Jesus... Tells the people this. Therefore, Jesus said, For a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. In these verses, Jesus, in fact, was prophesying his manifestation, he was prophesying about his death and his resurrection and the ascension to heaven. But as usual, the people failed to realize what he was talking about. Jesus was telling them that he would be glorified to the Father, the one that sent him, and prove to them indeed that he is indeed the Son of God, that he is deity. But the people failed to realize, and they thought that Jesus was going to go to the Greeks, he was going to go to the Gentiles and teach them instead. John H. Selhammer wrote this in his commentary. He said, It is not surprising that those who heard him were continually perplexed by this, though we, the readers, have little difficulty understanding him. We have John's prologue to tell us that Jesus was with the Father in eternity, and we have the rest of the book to point us to the resurrection. See, it's easy for us to look back and say, man, those Jewish people, they never got it right. But there's a lot of people in our world today that are in the same boat. See, for the original readers of the gospel and for us today, we have more insight on this matter. We can see the big picture, whereas the people where Jesus in person only had limited information, that information was not made clear to them every time. Jesus spoke in parables. Okay? He did that for a reason. We have the whole gospel story today that points us to the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. We have no excuse in not knowing the true identity of who Jesus is as it's revealed in the gospels. Now, one of the coolest things that Jesus did as he ended the feast, if you can show the slide, Steve. One of the rituals of the feast was that the priest would go to the Gihon Spring and he would get a gold pitcher and fill it up with water. And as the people were in a procession back to the temple, singing and worshiping God and thanking God for everything, that pitch of water represented and symbolized the provision that God gave them when they were wandering in the wilderness and how God gave them water. In reference to the story where water came out from the rock. And Jesus was very, very, very aware of this imagery. And so the priest then would go and take this water and he would pour it out on the altar in the temple as a symbol, Okay, as an important part of focusing on the provision of water that God gave them. And Jesus seeing that picture, I, I, I would imagine he saw that picture every day because they did it every day, once a day, for, for seven days. And Jesus saw that image. He's like, okay, I'm going to give them something better. And so at the end of the feast, okay, the Bible tells us that Jesus stood up. And he said, whoever is thirsty, come and drink from me. Replacing that physical water with living spiritual water. John writes this. Okay, if you can put this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Steve. John writes this. Now, on the last day, the great day, this was the most important part of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come out to me and drink. Notice the emphasis on standing up. Most of the rabbis would sit down when they were teaching, but Jesus here is proclaiming something important. Okay? He's making an important statement. So he stands up and says, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said... From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And what is this living water that Jesus offers us? What is this living water that he offered to people at the feast? But John tells us in the next verse that the living water was the person of the Holy Spirit who was given to those who believed in Jesus. The Spirit was not yet given to believers at that time because Jesus had not yet been glorified to the Father. He had not left earth yet. We know that this event took place in Pentecost, chapter 2, in Acts. And this was again another Old Testament promise that Jesus fulfilled, proving again that He was indeed the Son of God. Before His ascension to the Father, Jesus promised to give all believers the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John 16:7, he says this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, the people in our story today have formed different opinions and different perceptions about Jesus. Our earthly, fallacious thinking can keep us from knowing the real Jesus too. The real Jesus of the Bible. So how would you identify him today? What would your response be as to who is Jesus to you personally? We don't have to wonder because the scripture has given us the answer. John actually wrote his book for that very same reason. Here's what he said. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. It is this life that Jesus wants to offer to all of us, to all of us who put our faith and trust in Him. If you're interested in making that decision today, please come talk to me, or any of our elders after the service, or during this week, and we would love to guide you in making this important decision in your life. Jesus offered the same living water to the people at the feast. He offers that same living water to you. Will you be thirsty enough to receive it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into this world to die for our sins and to give us eternal life. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. May he draw us closer to you May you draw us closer to the truth and help us in our unbelief. Teach us the truths found in your word. And guide us, Lord, to live in a right relationship with you and to obey you willingly every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.